Exploring the Word of God together allows us to share in the joy that comes from discovering the words of hope and salvation which overflow from our Bibles. Upper Room Media presents to you this educational, enlightening and entertaining Bible study. Prepare to be transformed. Let us begin. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, one God, Amen. Um, today was going to be 1 Corinthians 11 and 12, but I'm not sure that we'll actually get to 12. Um, 11 is heavy, um, so if we do have time, then we will. And 11 is a natural end to the section, whereas 12 through 14 um, are going to be a discussion about spiritual gifts. So I'm not sure that we will. If we do, we do. If we don't, we don't. Um, so without further ado, um, we'll start off by just reading chapter 11 only, and then if we get to 12, we'll read that. So we're starting with 11 verse 2, because verse 1 was really the ending of the last section. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, one God, Amen. I commend you because you remember me in everything and maintain the traditions even as I have delivered them to you. But I want you to understand that the head of every man is Christ, the head of woman, the head of a woman is her husband, and the head of Christ is God. Any man who prays or prophesies with his head covered dishonors his head, but any woman who prays or prophesies with her head unveiled dishonors her head. It is the same as if her head were shaven. For if a woman will not veil herself, then she should cut off her hair. But if it is, if it is disgraceful for a woman to be shorn or shaven, let her wear a veil. For a man ought not to cover his head, since he is the image and glory of God. But woman is the glory of man. For man was not made from woman, but woman from man. Neither was man created for woman, but woman for man. That is why a woman ought to have a veil on her head, because of the angels. Nevertheless, in the Lord, woman is not independent of man, nor man of woman. For as woman was made from man, so man is now born of woman, and all things are from God. Judge for yourselves. Is it proper for a woman to pray to God with her head uncovered? Does not nature itself teach you that for a man to wear long hair is degrading to him, but if a woman has long hair, it is her pride? For her hair is given to her for a covering. If anyone is disposed to be contentious, we recognize no other practice, nor do the churches of God. But in the following instructions, I do not commend you, because when you come together, it is not for the better, but for the worse. For, in the first place, when you assemble as a church, I hear that there are divisions among you, and I partly believe it. For there must be factions among you in order that those who are genuine among you may be recognized. When you meet together, it is not the Lord's Supper that you eat. For in eating, each one goes ahead with his own meal, and one is hungry and another is drunk. What? Do you not have houses to eat and drink in? Or do you despise the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I commend you in this? No, I will not. For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, also the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of profaning the body and blood of the Lord. Let a man examine himself and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. 
For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment upon himself. That is why many of you are weak and ill, and some have died. But if we judged ourselves truly, we should not be judged. But when we are judged by the Lord, we are chastened so that we may not be condemned along with the world. So then, my brethren, when you come together to eat, wait for one another. If anyone is hungry, let him eat at home, lest you come together to be condemned. About the other things, I will give directions when I come. In the Father, Son, Amen. Okay, let me just pull out my notes here. Okie dokie. All right, so this is a, a heavy chapter. Um, it's the chapter where St. Paul talks about ladies in a way that many people find very troublesome. Um, and it is um, a very interesting chapter, I think, for us to meditate on about Eucharist. Um, I intentionally said cruciform communion because it's very clear, um, at least to me, in this um, chapter that St. Paul is, is talking not only about the body and the blood, he is talking about the Eucharistic communion of the believers. Um, and so I intentionally use the word communion here rather than Eucharist um, for our discussion. But we'll start off with um, St. Paul's uh, section first about um, the ladies. And please don't stone me. I know I'm not a female. Um, and so we will try and, and, and deal with this <laughs> appropriately. I wear a dress, but that's about it. So I commend you <laughs> because you remember me in everything and maintain the traditions, even as if I delivered them to you. I want to pause this for a second and make a point because of those who might not like traditions. Um, St. Paul is making clear reference to traditions that he taught them, that, there was, that there's practices that he gave them that are not written down. Because often we misuse um, the Bible, where we say, oh, if it's not in the Bible, it must not be real. And I've heard that from inside the church and from outside the church. Um, but even here, St. Paul is, is making comments about things that he's taught them that we have no idea what they are, um, but that, that were taught to them and that he clearly expected them to maintain. And it also makes a little bit of a point about those who think that the early church was willy-nilly and it was just, you know, anybody felt, did whatever they felt like it. There were customs and there were order, which we're going to see even more, actually, as we proceed. Okay, here begins the difficulties. But I want you to understand that the head, I almost want to use the Greek here, the archi, okay, um, of every man is Christ. The head, or archi, I can't pronounce it very well, of every man is Christ, and that same thing of a woman is her husband, and of Christ is God. Any man who prays or prophesies with his head covered dishonors his head. So he's saying, so men should not be covering their heads or they're dishonoring themselves. Um, I lost my spot. Uh, but any woman who prays or prophesies with her head unveiled dishonors her head. So a woman unveiled is dishonoring her head. It is the same as if her head were shaven. For if a woman will not veil herself, then she should cut off her hair. But if it is disgraceful for a woman to be shorn or shaven, let her wear a veil. For a man ought not to cover his head. So he's saying men aren't supposed to cover their head. And he's saying it's because of the image and glory of God. Woman is the glory of man. For man was not, created, was not made from woman, but woman from man. And, create, and man was not created for woman, but woman for man. 
And that's why he says a woman ought to have a veil on her head. And then he randomly throws in this line that has caused much puzzlement for centuries, where he just says, because of the angels. Um, nevertheless, in the Lord, and here's a very important part. Nevertheless, in the Lord, woman is not independent of man, nor man of woman. Okay? Um, for as woman was made from man, so man is now born of woman. All things are from God. Judge for yourselves. He's saying, okay, he, he's, he's, he's getting aggressive here and it's so lost in our generation, like culturally, where he's saying, okay, no, no, like judge for yourself. Like, tell me seriously, is it right for woman to pray to God with her head uncovered? Um, and so all of us here, like, sure, why not? Um, but clearly it meant something else back then. Um, does not nature itself teach you that for a man to wear long hair is degrading to him? But if a woman has long hair, it is her pride, for her hair is given for, to her for a covering. If anyone is disposed to be contentious, we recognize no other practice, nor do the churches of God. Here's another laying down, laying down of the law. Now, first and foremost, before getting into the nitty-gritty, it is not actually clear what St. Paul means. I'm sorry. Um, it is not, it's not a, an inherently, evidently obvious thing what he means. Because St. Paul is clearly making reference to certain cultural traditions. He's making reference to certain local contentious issues. And he's referring to moral um, norms that we don't recognize today. And by not recognize, I don't mean disagree with. I mean that like, we, don't even rec we can't even identify them today. Right? So, for example, when he says, doesn't nature teach you that a man's hair should be short? It, I don't think he means by nature, nature, because no one's hair is naturally short. Everyone's hair grows. So it's, it's, he's clearly referring to something that's a, a cultural um, understanding. Um, and so I want to make that clear. The other thing that I want to get into, so I'm, I'm not going to say here's what he means. I'm going to offer up different um, like interpretations based on the text and based on the language. I wanted to use the word archi for saying the head because the Greek word in which this is written is archi. And in, in Coptic, we've kind of, we've Copticized the Greek word and we say archi, but it's, it's, it's coming from the Greek. And the Greek word can mean head, but it can also mean first fruit. And I don't mean also as in occasionally means this. I mean regularly. It also means first fruit. It also regularly means source. And my personal interpretation is that this is more in the line of first fruit and source. Because um, it can also mean chief. It can mean that. It can mean head in the way that it's been um, translated. And that's the problem sometimes. I go, it's, it's not that we all need to read the Bible in its original language, but that's why it's important for people to keep reading the original languages and to study the original languages um, because of what things can mean in their proper context, right? And so, for example, with the bishop, who we call the archpriest, archi Erevs really means actually archpriest, not archbishop, but um, it can mean chief priest, but we also speak of the archi as being the prototype. And it can also mean the source. And in the language of source, it can really change things. So St. Paul is clearly making reference to Genesis. Okay. Um, and this is the most hierarchical, patriarchal sentences in, in probably in all of Corinthians. Um, but he's going to draw a line somewhere that's, that's very important for us to see. But um, even um, of saying the woman for the man, 
or from the man, the Greek actually can be read equally properly as not and woman is made for, for man, but it can be read as, as Allah can also mean but. But woman is the reflection or glory of man. And I really think there's something to that translation. Um, and even the way that the Greek grammar works, and I'm sorry that I'm getting all linguistic here, but I think that it really does matter. It's not about trying to find some excuse. I'm not trying to justify St. Paul as though he's saying something wrong. That's not my intent. I'm saying that we have to try and understand what he's really saying because he was writing in Greek. He was not writing in English. Um, and the translation of these came like centuries upon centuries later. Um, because it also might be better rendered that woman is not created for the sake of man, but on account of man. Um, and so if we were to read it in that way, which is how I particularly personally, and I emphasize personally, and it is a valid understanding of it, it appears to me that that might be what St. Paul is actually saying too. That he's not actually talking about an authority issue. I actually think he might even be quoting, continuing to quote the Corinthians as he has been previously, of things that they were arguing about where he is agreeing with some of what they're saying, but trying to give it a better understanding. To say that the source of woman is man, because it is, and the source of man is God, because God made man. And he's saying that the source of Christ, the headship of Christ, is the Father. And so he's giving things back to the natural order. And so the relationship here between woman and man is not apparently to me necessarily one of superiority. And the reason why I say that confidently is because then he makes a very clear distinction to say, but in the Lord, they're equal, right? That's why it appears to me he's responding to something from the language, but I'm, I'm offering an opinion interpretation um, in the same way that people over the centuries have, because it's not, it's not like I said, evidently clear. Um, and so these nuances suggest that it's, it's not an issue of superiority, but rather one of source. Then there's this um, enigmatic reference to the angels. Um, and there's two thoughts about this that I found in my, in my readings, um, because again, we're not quite sure what he means. Um, on the one hand, there's an idea that um, in the assembly, that's the real meaning of ecclesia. Um, it doesn't just mean congregation. It's actually about the, about the assembly. It's the coming, the, the ver like the actual coming together of the people, that the angels are present, which we do believe, right? Like the, the priest in the liturgy dismisses the angel of the sacrifice, for example. Um, in our hymns, we say, oh, angel of this day, or oh, angel of this evening, that we believe to be attending um, and, and, and offering our praise to the Lord. So he was saying that your head covering should be a sign of reverence for the angels that are present. Um, and some people think that it might be, um, and please don't scoff at this because we think very differently today, but for some people, there was a belief that you could tempt the angels sexually. Um, and so that seems very off to us today because today we talk about angels as being incorporeal bod bodies. But in first century, a lot of people, including people from within the church, um, like Augustine, for example, um, in the early church, many people actually believed that, that angels had a different kind of body than us, but they had a body nonetheless. Um, and that's why there are people who, for example, interpreted some of the passages of Genesis when they say the sons of God knew the sons of men 
That's why some people in the early church, some patristic fathers actually thought that was referring to a sexual relationship um, between fallen angels and, um, and humans, right? And that that's how they gave birth to giants, etc. So even though that's not how the church interprets this today, they're saying it might be that that was the cultural understanding of the time and St. Paul could be referring to either. Um, so neither here nor there, but just so that we can understand the passage together um, of what he might mean. And in this context as well, of what he's saying between men and women, it's also not entirely clear whether he's talking about husband-wife relationships or general male-female relationships. I don't know. Um, it's also not clear is this talking about the liturgy or the other meetings that are happening, because this chapter is going to show us that there are other meetings that are happening. Okay. So the concrete practice, there's an issue at hand, okay, is that the appropriate head covering or hairstyle for men and women at worship is the center of this controversy, okay, that they're, that they're having, of what should things look like. Um, and so he says, if a man prays or prophesies with his head covered, um, that that's a problem. Now, in order to understand this, again, because we're looking at this being like, what's, where is he getting this from? Right, and so um, I'm going to get to the cultural part in a second. But you got to understand that a lot of these people are converts from paganism, and in the pagan temple, um, when med men led the rituals in the pagan temples, they did cover their their heads. And so we, we, you can find that on ancient statues, on coins, and on all sorts of stuff. Um, and so it may be that what St. Paul is pointing at here is that if you are treating Christ like a pagan deity, then you're doing something wrong. And this is going to become much, much, much more evident shortly when we talk about communion, because they are actually doing a practice that was very common to the pagans. Right? That, that's why this is, is a, a possible meaning that I, I, I think is, is compelling. Um, on the other hand, a woman who prays or prophesies with her head uncovered or her hair unbound, that's what he means about shorn, okay, so just dropping her hair, he says disgraces her, her source, her husband. And this might be because of failing to maintain her gender identity or her sexual modesty. Um, or both. In, in, in cultural language of the time, she becomes a loose woman. And that somebody who's doing this would be rejecting sexual modesty, would be, it would be a culturally very inappropriate sign of saying, I'm not going to function like normal women do. Because the head covering or bound hair is a sign of, of chastity, and it's a symbolic barrier to sexual advances, because we need to understand them in their world. So regardless of how you feel about whether that should or shouldn't mean that is irrelevant. It's about how, how the Mediterranean world dealt with things in those times, right? So when a woman put those things on her head, it was a sign of back off, back off, I'm taken, right? I belong to this man, right? And so I will be a source of dishonor or shame. I will become shameless if I undo my head. So I'm going to pause for a second. So in, in this world, because it's very different than our modern world, up until recently, even the West cared about honor and dishonor. Um, but in the last 50, 60 years, actually, the West has cared more about dignity, not about honor and dishonor. 
So everything's about human dignity. Before it was about honor and shame practices. Okay. So in an honorable society, your conduct, your family, your status, your, your ethics, your morals became a sign of your honorability and your wealth. Okay. And the man could be honored or dishonored and you would dishonor somebody by challenging them, even intellectually. It didn't have to be um, just on, on, a, on a financial level. And so a woman didn't have a sense of honor and dishonor because a woman was connected to a man. A woman's um, language would have been shamefulness and shamelessness. It was actually good for a woman to be shameful. And shame doesn't mean the way it does today where you say, oh, you should be ashamed of yourself. Shameful was a good thing. Shameful meant you had a sense of, of, um, of humility, for lack of a, a better word. There's some great books about cultural principles by Bruce Molina. For those who are interested, I can shoot the title later on. But um, so when a woman went out, if she uncovered her head, she was considered shameless. And that was bad. Right. That would be like completely shameless. And so here what St. Paul is doing is that he is making reference to cultural norms as signs of people's expression of belief. We're going to come back to this. This is, I think, very important even for how we practice in the church today. Okay? And so in their world, in their world what's going on is that these women who are behaving in this way were basically saying, I don't care what you call gender. I'm not doing it. Okay, and so they were being very affrontive um, and they were take, doing things that the, that normal social culture would have looked at being like, what's that? Um, what's going on with those people over there, right? And so that's what I'm saying. When we get all caught up in reading St. Paul to have a debate about what he thought of women and what he thought of this, um, we might be missing the point. We might be completely missing the point because it doesn't seem to me, to be quite honest with you, that he's having a discussion about gender equality here at all. Um, he's referring to a whole other kind of context because within this passage, he's also saying if a woman prophesies, everybody ignores that first part of the discussion and goes straight into what he says, where he says when a woman is prophesying, making it clear that he believed that women could prophesy and that they should in church. And he's saying when they do it, not if they do it. He said when they do it, it should be done like this. He wasn't saying they should not. But we completely often leave that little like few words at the beginning and jump into the, to that. So like I said, women are clearly told to pray in this because he's talking about women praying, which means that he is definitely saying women speak to God. There's no male chauvinism here saying only men pray. And women are clearly acknowledged have the gift of prophesying, which means that actually he's saying that women are both speaking to God and speaking on behalf of God, both. He's making it clear that both are practice of the church, but he's talking about the order of things. He's talking about the, the order of things. Um, so I really think that um, suggesting complete chauvinism here might actually be missing the mark. It might be missing the whole point of, of St. Paul's um, discourse here. But worthy of discussion, I think, is that St. Paul is also making it clear, and this is totally, like, this is more offensive today, I think, than the woman issue, is that St. Paul is making it clear that there is such thing as gender distinction, <laughs> which makes this passage very relevant today, where we don't, we, I don't know how many genders are available now, but there, it's a really long list. Um, 
and that there's no such thing as gender. I, they're canceling gender reveal parties because you should let the baby choose. Um, and and it's, it's, things have escalated. Um, so St. <laughs> Paul seems to be making reference to certain cultural norms of the time, but these cultural norms, regardless of how you feel because they're not your cultural norms, were indicators of gender identity. And actually for that reason, I find this very valuable even though most people hate this passage. I actually think this is a really helpful passage um, for us in our discussion. Um, because we can have new ways to show cultural identity of gender, right? So if we look at this chapter, for example, the church has not forbidden women from cutting their hair, even though St. Paul has clearly spoken negatively about like the shoring and non-shoring of hair, right? The church has not forbidden women, at least, <laughs> at least on a canonical level of wearing pants. Okay, because as cultural um, norms changed in terms of how something becomes feminine or masculine, those are very culturally defined factors, right? That what, what St. Paul was challenging was people abusing the, the, the understood norms of their time. Okay, so like if, forgive the analogy, Right. If 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 a male were to walk in wearing, I don't know, a, a, a female bathing suit, people would be able to understand that he's wearing a female bathing suit. They'd be able to look at that and say that is feminine, based on the norms of our time. Right. Today, when men like me wear a dress, <laughs> people consider a dress belonging to women. But if you went to England, maybe even 500 years ago, it wasn't such a crazy idea actually, right? Because there are different cultural norms, right? But there would be different ways of indicating a male dress, quote unquote, from a female dress. So St. Paul is actually, I don't think really trying to have a debate about whether the cultural norms are intrinsically themselves good or bad. He's saying that gender identity is a thing and that males should be males and females should be female. And that's an important message even more, I think, in this time than it, even more today, I think, maybe, than it's time. So the source of the woman, the archi of the woman, is the male and the head-body analogy that St. Paul is using. And I actually think that matters. It matters a lot and not in terms of the typical, again, the debates that we have about men and women, good and bad and all that, but because order matters. Order does matter. Order is not a sign of inequality. Order is order. It's, a, it's its own thing. Okay. So, for example, we have the central nerve. If the man is the archi, if the man is the head, if the man is the chief, if you want to go with the head translation of the word, okay, no problem. There's, we have a central nervous system. But you also have a peripheral nervous system, and that is just as important, right? So the existence of the head does not negate the existence of the peripheral. It does not negate this in the body. And it's not saying that one part of the body is more honorable or dishonorable than the other. It's giving an order to things, a source things of things. Just like if people were to be so upset about that, then we're going to have a problem because this is emulating the Trinity. Because in the Trinity, there are multiple persons who are one. And the father is the archi, the father is the source, right? And so in the way that there's no such thing as a mind without thought, the mind begets thought. 
There is never a moment in which there is mind and no thought. That is the relationship of the father to the son. He is the logos. Right? And so we say the archi, and this is why St. Paul says it explicitly. He says the archi of the Lord is God, because that was the title for the father. Right? And so he's saying, I'm calling you, woman, that you, you have a head, you have a, you have a source, you have an archi, being the man, because woman is created from man, but it's not derogatory. Because he's saying, and you, man, come from Christ. And if that's derogatory, then we have a monumental problem because then he says, and the archi of Christ is God. So there is nothing degrading about this, this process, right? It's only degrading because of how we interpret source and headship and, 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 and origins. But it is not in itself actually um, something offensive. And actually, if we interpret this as subordination, like within Trinity, then the church causes heretics. The church officially says, if you believe in the subordinationist view of the Trinity, that you are a heretic, right? And, 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 and consequently, it's the same of the male-female relationship. Even if there is an archi, it does not mean subordination of women. And that is why St. Paul says, nonetheless, in the Lord, all are equal. Right? He emphatically says that after he's gone through the analogy, he makes a point of stepping in. And that's why I really am suspicious that he's responding to something they were saying. It's just harder to point out here. Um, it was easier in other chapters, and here I'm not sure, but there's something going on. Um, and it's also clear that St. Paul is not ordering the women not to have gifts. Um, there's something going on in this epistle, in this chapter, in this group, that, that's not clear to us today, which is, which is unfortunate. Okay? But at the same time, this affirmation of, of, of the three relationships of, of archi, that it could be either hierarchical as authority or relational as source. Um, in either case, what St. Paul is saying is that you can disgrace the head. You can disgrace your source by your behavior. Because, and this is why he got into the reflection and the glory. I was saying because man is the reflection and glory of God and woman is the reflection and glory of man. Because he's saying that in a relationship, whether it's because it's a head and a body, or whether it's because of your source, it doesn't matter. You affect one another. You bring honor or shame, honor or dishonor, glory or not to one another. And that's also important to understand. Right? So when we do not live according to our actual function, then we do shame, in this honor-shame thing we're talking about, the other part of the body and ourselves. So St. Paul is saying that we shame God because the ultimate archi, the ultimate source, or ultimate head, whatever like you want to understand archi to mean, is God himself. So in not living according to our function, we shame God. This is so important spiritually. Imagine, okay, imagine if you taught someone to drive. Your job is to teach people to drive. That's your function. That's your function. And everyone you taught regularly crashed. What does it say about the person who crashed? But what does it say about his or her driving instructor? You. If all of your graduates regularly crash, right, then there's an issue. 
Or let's say all of yours regularly passed and one of them failed. That person who failed dishonors you in that honor dishonor culture, right? Because it was like, man, he made me look bad. I've had like a perfect score, but this guy made me look bad. That, that's, that's part of what it means to dishonor. It's, it's, a, it's a terrible thing. Let's say you tutor people and all your students fail. It reflects on you as a teacher, right? So this is what he's trying to say is that regardless of how you understand Archi, he's saying that what you do is, is, is reflective on God. It's reflective on the relationships. Um, and that's why it's important for us to have right function, to have right conduct, because our conduct means something and it means something beyond our individual selves. That's, that's a very valuable lesson that I don't think most of us live like today. Today we're mostly like, this is between me and God, um, this is between me and whatever, this is my personal choice, this is my body, this is my mind, this is my whatever, right? Where it's okay, it's not. And we're going to get even more into that when we get into communion shortly. So St. Paul is instilling in a way that you might not notice the unity of the body, actually, rather than a division of the body. That the honor of one is the honor of all, and the shame of one is the shame of all. Your actions do not belong to you alone. I wonder today if St. Paul might take this further if he lived in our times to challenge us about other behaviors that weren't going on in his time. The way you speak online, on Facebook or Instagram or Twitter, does it shame or honor the body? St. Paul is talking about unruly conduct. Is that what we do? Do you wear a cross around your neck? These are the new norms of, 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 of different cultures of our time. So most of us are wearing crosses. Do you wear a cross around your neck while cussing up a storm or lying through your teeth? Do you have a beautifully tattooed cross that every time you hold up the hookah, everybody gets to see? Are you named after a saint? like actually named after a saint and living as far away from that person's life as possible. You shame the saint. We shame all of the above, and I speak this to my own shame. Right? And that's why I, like, I think St. Paul would, would take it further than us because we have so many cultural norms now that, that I think might be abused. So I want to pause for a moment and bring back the discussion a little bit to order because I actually think this is such a, an un- appreciated aspect of creation. God created day and night. There's an order. Hours for working and hours for sleeping. He created animals and beasts and they have a functional order. When we stray from that order, we get problematic results. So when it comes to gender specifically, forgive me, I don't, I, I might be called out for, for being a typical patriarchal system, I don't think I am, but, but, but hear me out. Um, when we stray from that order, we have home. So when it comes to gender, when we forget that there are gender roles, I'm not talking about um, saying, here's the rule about women, and here's the rule about men, but I'm saying about the existence of gender roles. It affects homes. When men want to be women and women men, Everything goes whack. And who suffers? Our children. 
and it's going to affect their children. So if both are at work, both parents are at work, who raises the children? I'm not talking about who should work and who shouldn't work. I'm asking it as a general question of if both, forget who it should be. I'm saying if both are at work, who will raise the children? Why am I bringing that up as a question? Because that question arising is because of another thing going wrong before it. That's what I mean about problems begetting problems. When the natural order of things change such that we now aspire to more to wealth than family, right? Now we would rather have more money than more kids. We'd, have, we'd rather have more money than more community. Culturally, there might be exceptions. That forces the question of who's gonna work because we want more money. So now we've necessitated a question that wasn't there before of, okay, well then maybe we both need to work more so that we can get more money so we can aspire to this standard of wealth that we have come to value that was not the natural order of things because here's an important question, who invented money? It wasn't God. So when we took something out of its order and gave it new meaning, that changed the natural order of things. And I'm not talking about who's right and who's wrong, and what advantage and what disadvantage, and can women work, and can men work, and should women work, and can there be a good male stay-at-home dad? I'm not talking about any of those things. I'm simply saying that in their being, male and female in creation means that there is such thing as gender role, regardless of what the role is. It exists. Right? You can have discussions all you want locally about what that should look like. What I'm throwing out there is that it exists. But because we want to work, other people raise our children. We're going to send them to the daycare, we're going to send them to the schools, we're going to send them to wherever because that's what we need to do. And now our children get the views of whoever raises them. And we're creating a cycle. Right? And then that cycle perpetuates itself and creates new problems. I'm not saying women or men can't work. I'm saying, do you ask the order of things before you make a decision about those things? Do you ask what it means to be a male or female, son or daughter, husband or wife? Have you ever asked what is work for? Right? So cruciform living in spiritual life would be to love as God loves. And sometimes left unsaid is, and to value as God values. To value things the way God values those things. That is to crucify my will against the true will, against the right will. Now, again, I'm going to come back to, in spite of all of that, St. Paul clearly came back to mutual reciprocity. Um, and equality of men and, and women, and that it is specifically, he says, the gospel that makes them equals. Um, and I think that's worth us remembering, and regardless of how one interprets that first section, um, I hope that was a satisfactory um, discussion of that passage, because it's, it's different. Um, I'm going to skip this next part. Um, actually, I'll say something very quickly. Um, I want to just say that custom matters. I know I've said it already a little bit before, but I'm just going to repeat it. Um, customs matter. And the reason why they matter is not because of the act in, in and of itself. Okay? Like, it, it's about what, what cultural expressions 
we use to, to, to signify meaning and values, right? There's no way of showing people meaning other than through actions, right? Like even if the action is speech, even if the action is speech, it's still an action, right? And so what we do as customs have meaning. So those customs can change, that's not a problem. But what I'm saying is that we've also, just to take from this section, we've gotta be careful about which customs we just get rid of, right? What we just get rid of. So for example, I'm not gonna get into my opinion of isharbs and, and, and women head coverings or not. But what I would say is, if we wanna get rid of a veil, that's it, that is a topic open for discussion. It's not, that's not an intrinsically wrong discussion to have. But we would first need to understand what did the veil actually signify? Because to say that the veil signified the subjugation of women is a hyper like misinterpretation of what it meant in its own context. And so the question would then be to beg, beg is how do we also proclaim through our action the distinction between men and, and, and women that is a holy and good thing it's not a distinction of inequality because St. Paul says it's a distinction among equals. It's monumentally important. It is a distinction among equals. Then what becomes the new way of expressing such equality while teaching that we do believe in a distinction? Because actually that teaching is important in our time. Okay, so that, that's what I'm saying. Just make sure you approach that kind of discussion easily instead of saying, huh, finally they got rid of those. It's about time people recognize that women are, are, are humans too. That's not actually what was going on at all. Now, before we get into the next part, and I'm gonna show you guys a picture in a moment. Um, St. Paul is about to get into communion. Communion among believers of people and communion being the Eucharist, the, the body and the, and the blood of, of the Lord. Now, he is about to get into a criticism of saying that there's something that they're doing that is monumentally harming the community. And it's continuous with the factionism that he had been talking about earlier. And he's gonna express his deep concern that things are messed up, but he actually, he's a bit of an optimist. And he said, I'm hoping something good comes from this. And the concrete problem, I just wanna identify the problem for you before we go through it like in, in more detail, um, seems to be something like this. As we said in our intro, all of the believers um, among the church of Corinth came from different socioeconomic groups, right? There was rich, there was poor, there was converts from paganism, converts from, from Judaism. There's all these different kinds of people, okay? Now, where were they meeting? In people's homes. So whose homes were gonna be the ones that accommodate them? Those of the rich. Okay, the wealthy Greco-Roman patrons. They have more wealth, more leisure, more status. Okay, um, and so these assemblies, the liturgy, would happen in these people's homes. What seems to be happening is that the homeowners, friends and colleagues and equals, these other rich people, they would arrive early for the evening gathering. So they would, they, would, they would commune in the evening together to celebrate the Lord's Supper, to have Eucharist. Um, but these people would come early and they'd have a whole nice meal with each other. And as a matter of fact, as we see, some of them are having such a good time that they were completely wasted and drunk 
um, before they even had time for liturgy. Okay, it was clearly getting out of hand. Now the early birds are having their, their meals before these other people came. And why were these other people coming later? Because they were workers. They were poor. It was because of their work that they were not able to come early. And so now there's a factionalism going on based on people's wealth, right? Um, and so these people are coming, they've missed out on the meal. If there's leftovers, good for them. If not, they just, they don't get to have it. Their hosts are all, are all, are all drunk. And it shows that these wealthy people didn't care about the poor people who came. Now, I just wanna show you this picture before um, I give another part of the intro. Um, can you guys see the, that picture? Okay, so this is the a house of, of a rich patron style person from that time. This is the outside atrium of the house, okay? And so what often um, would happen is that they would fill the, the, the wealthy patrons and their friends would be on the inside of the house, okay? And then the, um, their guests would be lounging, so they would actually lie down and eat, like, like the kind of things you see on those movies where they're all on these couches and people are coming out with grapes. It's, it's that kind of, of scene, okay? And then the slightly outer um, area would be the overflow of those. They're the lesser wealthy and but more close. But the poor people, and they'd come, they'd be stuck out here. They'd be stuck out here in the atrium, like they were nobodies, okay? So if they were lucky, they could go back inside um, and, and get something to eat. But the inner dining rooms, they'd have one or two dining that was for the, the rich people. And then that would also mean that these poor people, if they found food, were gonna be eating separately. They'd be eating separately from the rich. So then here you have within the church, a clear have and have not society where the poor people are kicked out and that's messed up. Um, and so that's why St. Paul is saying this is not the Lord's Supper that you're coming for. That's what he's going to say. This is, this is a dinner party, um, a dinner party of the Corinthian elite, and that has no place in church. And so he's saying that this is not the ritual. This is not the Lord's Supper. Um, and so he's going to get very, very strict. Um, and we're going to see what his solution is, is, is going to be um, in terms of the gospel. So verse 17 till the end, we'll just, I'll, I'll zoom through it and paraphrase it as I go. Okay, so he's saying, so in the following instructions, I, I'm not happy with you. I do not commend you. Um, I, I, I'm the opposite of recommending you. I'm calling you out. When you come together, it is not for the better, right? So the assembly of the faithful is supposed to be for something good. It is not for the good. This is definitely for the worse. Because in the first place, when you ecclese as an ecclesia, um, to make up a verb, when you assemble as an assembly, I hear that there are divisions among you. And he's like, and you know what? I believe it. Because remember that somebody came to him with news, right? Somebody had come to him and told him what was going on. So he's saying, yeah, yeah, I heard it, but I'm not going to lie to you. I believe it. I do believe. I believe what they're saying to me. Um, and so he says, look at what you're doing. You're trying to get recognition. When you get together, it's not the Lord's Supper that you're eating. Actually, you're going ahead with your own meal right? So that's the rich that arrive early. Um, while on, the, on, on, on one side of your wall, some guy is hungry. And on the other side of your wall, somebody's drunk. And then he, he exclaims, he's like, what? Right? Like he's, 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 flipping, he's flipping his lid. 
do you not have houses to eat and drink in? He's like, okay, like, do you, are you unable to eat and drink before you come? That you have to come early just to pig out and get drunk before they come? Why? Why are you doing it here? Or is it, and this is what he's saying, actions have meanings. Or is it that you despise the church of God and you humiliate those who have nothing? You're looking for social justice? Here it is. St. Paul is looking for the rights of others. Right? St. Paul is speaking on behalf of, of them saying this is totally reprehensible. What can I say to you? You want me to commend you in this? No, I won't. For what I received from the Lord, I delivered to you. This is so interesting what St. Paul says here because he's making very direct reference to his specific individual teaching from the Lord God himself because this is not in the four gospels what he says. This is part of our liturgical uh, celebration but it's not worded like this um, in the Gospels. For the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, also the cup after supper, saying this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. End quotes. Whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of profaning the body and blood of the Lord. Let a man examine himself and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body and drink, uh, body eats and drinks judgment upon himself. That is why many of you are weak and ill and some have died. But if we judged ourselves truly, we should not be judged. For when we are judged by the Lord, we are chastened so that we may not be condemned along with the world. So then, my brethren, when you come together to eat, wait for one another. If anyone is hungry, let him eat at home, lest you come together to be condemned. About the other things that we don't know what they are, because they're delivered by, by either letter or word, I will give directions when I come. So I'm going to like um, expound a little bit on, on some significances of how St. Paul talks about you. Because here I'm not going to give a whole lesson on Eucharist that, that warrants its own just talk on because I don't think we understand it properly today or revere it enough today. Um, or we go the other way and treat it wrongly, but again, we're not having that talk. Um, I'm actually going to borrow, like there's a good reference that, that I read, some of his headings, but I'm going to kind of chrismate it with my rune to make it a little bit more orthodox because I actually think that a lot of the headings that we had were, were spot on. I just don't want credit for something that I didn't come up with. Um, first of all, the Lord's Supper, he's saying, is not a sequence of private meals. I'm stating the obvious, but we're going to talk about what, does that, what kind of meaning does that have. Okay? It's a communal event of the community, of kanunia. Okay? It's a communal event, which means solidarity. It means fellowship, and it means communion, the coming together. And the communion... In verse 1621 is with Christ he is the risen and present host of the meal okay and consequently is also with one another because the people are Christ's body this is how you link the first part of the chapter it is the archi head with its body okay and so the communion is first and foremost with God and consequently with the whole community because we are his body 
And that is in the context of the church, the assembly, the ecclesia. This is very rich language. And so St. Paul is making clear that there has to be a special solidarity with those who have nothing. Because that, the whole point of this, this, this conflict is about their abuse of those who are poor. So Christ and the church, Christ and the people are inseparable. And that's why he says, without discerning the body. We're used to talking about discerning the body as meaning specifically the Eucharist itself, which it does partially mean. But St. Paul is taking this way further than I think most of us realize. He's also talking about not discerning the body of the Lord being the whole people of God. That's scary. Okay, he's saying that you better be discerning the whole body of God. How are you treating all of them? And so it's about discerning and honoring the church members as the body of Christ as much as it is about the actual body and blood of Christ. So he's emphasizing the community. He is emphasizing the community. But he is also saying there is something very specific about this one loaf and one cup. That's why he says this stuff that you're doing beforehand, nope, that's not it. That's not, that's not the Lord's Supper. Throw that out, that first part. That when you come together, you're eating and you're drinking and you're coming for, for the Lord, he's like, no, that's not the Lord's Supper. The Lord's Supper is specifically the one loaf and the one cup. What unites us as a community is the one loaf and cup. And I think that is monumentally importance okay that the body being the people and the body and the blood being the elements are inseparable from christ himself and that the unity is around the lord himself and that means many things we're not going in order of, of importance right now but number one number one on my mind right now as i'm thinking is church is not a social club church is not a cultural club church can lose Sunday school, church can use youth group, church can use GYP meetings, church can lose any of those things. I'm not saying that they should. But St. Paul is saying those aren't church. Church is the assembly of the people around the body and the blood of the Lord. Eucharist is everything in our community. In all senses of the world. And that through the body of Christ are all one. All are one in the body of Christ in spite of social class. Do you show this in church? Right? Do we treat people as guests rather than equals? When you have other, for example, Orthodox members of the community, other Oriental Orthodox community, you have an Eritrean, or you have an Ethiopian, or you have converts, do you treat them like guests? Do you talk about them like they're guests? Or do you see them as equals? They are another actual member as opposed to a member in your specific household. That's a hard one, right? I've always wondered, especially because of one convert priest that people from my community know very well. I'm just like, how long do we call these people converts for? This guy's been convert longer than I've been alive. Why am I still calling him a convert, right? And it's not because there's something wrong with the word convert. It's just that sometimes it's used to denote a different kind of member, but they're not a different kind of member. We're all converts. We just had different baptism dates but we're all converts. There's a real significance to the one cup and one body. I don't know if people know this, but in a, in, in, in a traditional ecclesial theology, there is not supposed to be multiple liturgies in one church, according to the early church. That was never a thing. 
In the monastery, there's not supposed to be simultaneous or multiple liturgies. It's not supposed to be allowed. Because the event, the event of Eucharist is not about just the body and the blood. That's the importance of this passage. If it was just about random people having body and blood, then you could do it wherever you want and in as many ways as you want. St. Paul is saying it's not just about the body and the blood, it's about the whole community. The whole community must come together to show that it is the body. Otherwise, the body is divided. Otherwise, you have hands and feet going to dance class and you've got like torso going to some other place, right? And you've got the knees that are chilling. No, he's saying no, the, the, the whole people of God must assemble, rich and poor, elite and non-elite. All of you come together and what unites you is the body and the blood. It was never allowed in the history of the church. Needs to, and as a matter of fact, people today, like, they, they, they're like, so how do you have communion when there's that many people? If you look at the early rituals of the Coptic Orthodox Church, I can only speak for our tradition to some extent, I'm not an expert. Um, they used to put multiple urbanas on top of each other, multiple lobes, so that the act of blessing would happen on the top one, but there would be as many as was necessary underneath that you could distribute to give, but there needed to be one altar and one table. Actually, the symbolism went even further. Some people don't understand why in the liturgical ritual of the liturgy, it says, and the priest signs the deacon to his right. There's a reason why it was to his right. It's because there was one deacon, usually, but the deacon and the priest shared the cross. When the priest would use a cross to bless, he would then put the cross beside him and the deacon would use it to do his responses. There was even one cross. This emphasis of unity was built into absolutely everything. Right? And so there's, there's a real significance to the one cup and the one body. The understanding of the body also being the whole church is going to become more emphasized in the warnings that we're going to get into. So second, the supper is an event of memory. So the part that St. Paul talks about saying for the Lord Jesus in the night that he was betrayed, said, etc. Um, the, the formal Greek word for this in the liturgy is the anamnesis. Okay, the memorial, the remembering. And St. Paul's reminding the Corinthians of the words of institution. The words that the Lord um, used, we are definitely not doing chapter 12 today. Please bear with me. I should be done in about 15 minutes. I'm sorry. Um, the words of the Lord handed first to him from the Lord. Maybe he heard from others, but then he passed on to Corinthians. Now, these words, they're similar to Luke's account. They're not, they're not completely different. They're, 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 they're similar. Um, um, maybe more close to Mark and Matthew. Focuses on the phrase, in remembrance of me. And saying that there's an importance to us re-experiencing, re-remembering the death and resurrection of the Lord. Okay? And, and there's a cultural thing going on here that we might not appreciate um, explicitly today. I think we might appreciate um, emotionally. But a remembrance for the Jews in their tradition was not just like, like a, re, a, a, re, a recollection. Okay, it wasn't just like, oh, do you remember that? Like, like it, wasn't, it wasn't that. It was, it's about actually faithfully responding to God's past saving actions, right? So it's like, a, it's like a, an act of loyalty, an act of repayment, right? Of saying, remember, remember this event means like, oh yeah, because this is my response that was supposed to come from it. It was not just a like, oh, the good old days when Jesus was around. That's not, that's not what the what the meaning is here at all. Um, thank you for those who laughed at my joke. Um, to remember Christ's self-giving um, in death is to participate in it 
this is this is deep um, as a present reality it's us now making the cross a living thing today and then bringing us to live faithfully and appropriately in the shadow of the cross so like even in the church that i'm in because it doesn't have a, a, a the traditional iconostasis above me right now would usually be a huge crucifix right that we're living in the shadow of the cross we are being reminded to live cruciformly um, in the same way that the lord did so now the question to us becomes do you actively participate in the enemesis do you have a memorial in that way for every time you eat this bread we are celebrating and remembering his death and resurrection and that's why that part of the liturgy is is one of my favorites right is that is that we're being called to do what saint paul talked about when the priest says before the whole people profess we say for every time you spread in his blood you proclaim my death confess my resurrection and remember me until i come and then the people say amen 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 your death O lord we proclaim um etc your death and resurrection we confess um etc but we we now are brought into this anamnesis actively and actually if you read the prayers the inaudible prayers of peace later on he says lord we have done the work what did, what gets described as the work we proclaimed your death we professed your resurrection right that's actually what the priest says inaudibly at some point in the liturgy imagine if somebody gave you an organ donation that saved your life would you not want to memorialize that person right if you don't it means that you're pretty self-centered and you couldn't care less about what the person did for you okay sorry but at the same time if you were selected by this person which we believe to be which we're going to get into in the covenant part somebody actively chose you would you not say my remembrance of this organ donation i now want to live a life in response to this to show that i was worth this life-saving donation right that's why the church is calling us to respond to the memory by living it that's what we're doing through eucharist and what we're supposed to live that's what we say we're supposed to live eucharistically acts of remembrance bring us back to our identities and our histories right they help us remember who we are and why we are here and the people without a history is an ignorant people when you don't know your history you can't make sense of your presence uh, of your present sorry um the enlightenment fundamentalism founding fathers of america establishment of british north america right new france these are all things that many people don't know anymore but not knowing them makes you not actually understand how your culture that wherever it is that you live came to be and where your rules came from and why they are i won't get into the details of that because of timing sorry third the lord's supper is an act of covenant renewal because we're saying that and every time i eat this i proclaim my death resurrection and it says and that we enter in the covenant saint paul says and so when we drink from the cup there's is a bodily act the body the whole community of receiving or ingesting literally jesus's death the lord jesus's death and thereby reaffirming the community's participation in the new covenant it's the community's way of repeatedly renewing our baptismal experience of dying and rising with Christ everything goes back to your baptism everything goes back to your baptism because that's the new covenant that's the, the eucharist 
is the only repeatable part of the sacraments of initiation. We never rebaptize. We never rechrismate when somebody sins, for example, or goes against God from our community. But you can have, but we we have Eucharist over and over and over again because that's the renewal of our covenant. That's the source of our oneness with God. That's the source of forgiveness of sins. That's the source of our making right. That is what it is, right? And Eucharist as a partition, as a partition of a covenant is also why those who are not of the faith are not permitted to have Eucharist. They didn't enter that covenant, right? So if they didn't enter that covenant, um, then they can't have Eucharist. Doesn't? I don't know what's going on. San Diego? Okay. Okay, sorry. Um, someone just unmuted my bed. I forgot to turn off the muting uh, options. Sorry. People who are not in the community, <laughs> um, they do not get to have Eucharist. And it's not because we are horrible people who want to subjugate other people to ridicule. It's saying you're not part of this deal. If you want to join this deal, you can. You can enter in, enter in through the door. And this, this ritual, this reenactment, this anamnesis of the real body and the real blood are the sign of your membership. And if you don't believe in this, then you, then you, then you, you have to accept a covenant. A covenant is between two sides. The Lord's side is already open. He already did that. On our side, that's a question of do you enter this covenant actively and willingly? Because if you do, it requires you to participate in a particular way, which again, we're going to come to. So Eucharist is not your right. And that's why it's so important for him to ask, do you think that you are entitled to Eucharist? I'm not talking about somebody telling you whether you can or can't. I'm asking about you towards yourself. If you are not living in covenant, should you participate? If the Eucharist is a sign of your response to the cross, and I'm not saying that to shame anybody here. I'm saying it because we have an extreme of malish, malish, it's okay, it's okay whatever. Oh, someone told you should not have communion. How dare they? They have no right. Um, and I'm not talking, I'm not going to get into the nitty gritty of whether they have a right, don't have a right. That's not the issue at hand right now. But it's to say, how do you perceive it? Are you fearful to participate when it's not? So for example, if you got a liver donated to you and you had originally lost your liver because you had cirrhosis from your binge drinking, and now you got a new liver. How do you feel if you binge drink after? When it's like, but that was the reason why you needed a new liver. Right? We have to take Eucharist much more seriously. Much more seriously. The Eucharist is an act of proclamation. As he says, every time you do this, every time you do this, you're proclaiming something. You're proclaiming the death and resurrection of the Lord and waiting for him to come. So I'm not going to spend too long on this because of time, but the question is, are you living the Eucharist? Are you living the Eucharist? Are you, pro are you actually proclaiming the Lord through you living as a functioning member of the Lord's body? Okay. The explicits of that, the details of that are going to come in Corinthians 13. 
but does your life show the cross? This is the cruciform life of love, this, this, this epistle. Does your life manifest the cross? Because that's what it's supposed to be in our participation. And do people see in you that you are a part of the body of the Lord? Can somebody look at me and be like, oh, that's a Christian? Because it should be. Eucharist should make you that. It's supposed to make you an embodiment of integrity. Okay, because it's your inauguration into that new covenant. And that's why, St. Paul says, it requires self-examination. He says, examine yourself when you go. Are you discerning the body? And so there has to be examination before Eucharist. That's one of the reasons why the church emphasized linking confession with Eucharist. Right? Of saying, do you examine? Are you asking yourself reflectively? It was not about whether you're good enough or bad enough to have communion. It was saying... Your participation in Eucharist means something. So reflect. Is your life reflective of that meaning? And if it isn't, go say sorry to Jesus in this room and then take his body in this room. And you can even do it in the same room. Okay? But that this is how we enter into it. And so we really have to ask, do I think about any of these things you put into Eucharist? Or do I say, uh, whatever? Right? So for example... One of the ways that the church was trying to show reverence for the body and the blood of the Lord is fasting before communion. Today we have big fights about where did this even come from? Why are we even doing that? And I know that it was made up. I'm not going to tell you it's not made up. It's very clear in this chapter that it was made up. They were having dinner and having communion. So I know it's made up. It's not a problem. Because the church was never saying, oh, the Lord said this. The church was saying, can we try and find a way collectively as a community to show reverence to this? So the first thing you have in that day where you approach the day of the Lord, the first thing that enters into you is the Lord himself. It's saying, isn't that beautiful? Right? And so it's a collective sense of reverence, not of, of, of a bunch of old men who are saying, how can we azib, how can we torture or torment people? And if I view it like that, then okay, if I'm unable, no problem. I can get a dispensation from my spiritual um, elder. But is your goal to get a dispensation, right? Or is your goal to say, how can I show the Lord this great reverence, right? That I'm approaching a great and deep mystery when I approach the table. Because it's not just any table. St. Paul says, it's in remembrance of me. It's saying, this is the communal banquet, guys. This is the table we're going to share with the Lord in the kingdom to come eternally, right? How excited must we be? That's why a lot of the Coptic hymns I really love Start with Amoini, O come. It's this excited call. Come, come, guys, come, right? O come, let us worship, right? Um, o come, let us bow down. O come, let us sing. Come, my brethren, let us sing of the virtues of the Theotokos, right? We're, we're, we're getting excited about something, right? And so this is, this is the communion. This is the Messianic banquet. It is, it's, not, it's a memory of the past, in anticipation of the future to come. It's, it's actually out of time. It's a present function, live, like connecting the past reality in the flesh, in time and space, with the future that is completely out of all elements. So think about how you approach the table. Right? Think about how you approach the table, because I think we fight more about uh, yeah, I didn't want to do that, or yeah, this is so lame, and blah, 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 and, and we get really bogged down by ridiculousness, where it's like, yeah, it's also Jesus at the table. 
the Lord of glory who condescended to us and died, offered himself up for the life of the world. And we're fighting over whether it's okay to fast four or nine hours. Okay, I'm, I'm just using that as, as a symbol of, of the debate. It's not the only one, but I hope you get my meaning. I'm not attacking anybody. And finally, the Lord's Supper is a sacrament. It's a sacrament. There is something mysterious occurring. That this, this bread and this wine are somehow truly the body and the blood. This is the functioning of grace, right? God's gift upon us in spite of our unworthiness. And that God's grace works in and through the body of believers. The body of believers affect grace. The Lord affects grace because of what they do. And that is why it is so important for the people of God to come together to pray. That is why apostolic worship is communal and not individualistic. It's not your personal salvation. The mystery is realized through the coming together of the body with its head. So deep, deep importance. I'm sorry, I, I, I could go on and on and on about you first. I'm going to stop. Um, but it's clear that what St. Paul is saying is that the cross, the proclamation of Eucharist, the proclamation of the, of the divine meal, the proclamation of the people, the archi with its body, is cruciform, is cross-shaped, is cross-centered until the very day of the parousia, of the second coming. When the new covenant event of everything becomes alive and realized in, 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 in its end. I just want to take very, very quickly, I'm sorry, and I'll, I'll, I'll end there, is this partaking unworthily. I just want to come back to it, because I, I meant to say it earlier and I didn't. There's two senses that St. Paul's talking about. Condemnation of partaking of the bread and wine that become the body and the blood un unworthily, because he said that, he did say that. But I also want to emphasize the discerning of the body with, with respect to the communal aspects. That he's saying that this is also worthy of condemnation. Do you think of the whole body of Christ as you live from day to day? Do you think about how you affect the community? Do you think about how you treat members of the community? Because for St. Paul, the lack of concern for the community is a matter of condemnation. Do you care how the church is doing? Do you care about how, who is vulnerable in the community? Do you try and find a system that accommodates only you or everyone? Whether it's Sunday school, church schedules, food in the basement. I've heard things that are, are, are scarring of people being refused food at the agape meal after the liturgy because they couldn't pay for it, which is messed up on a whole other level. I'm not judging any parish. I don't know the background of any story, but if that's a reality, that is a messed up reality. Because actually the agape meal that St. Paul is talking about here is exactly condemning that very issue. He's saying, how dare you exclude the poor? How dare you? And so if there's any money collected on the agape meal, it, I would hope that it's going towards the poor if they collect money. Because the agape meal is supposed to be free. It is not supposed to be um, having a fee. My, my bishop... Um, it ordered a canon to our diocese. So I can only speak as an LA diocese member. 
he made a canon for our diocese that no one is allowed to charge for food because the understanding of what the of what the agape meal is supposed to be. Um, if the money is going to revenue, something's wrong to agape meal. There has to be a link between the cross and your living. Okay, the cross links us to Eucharist, to the body of God, the people, the community, the rituals, and everything in it. And St. Paul says something scary here that I think we don't take seriously enough. He says, some of you, when doing this unworthily, have gotten sick and died. And I'm pretty sure he means that literally. I don't think he means that metaphorically. Um, and I, I know somebody who, who had the blessing of seeing Pope Kurlis many times. Um, Pope Kurlis said to this person, people are not taking seriously this passage. He said, there are people among us in the churches who are actually getting diseased, and he means physical disease, because of not discerning the body. Let everyone examine him or herself. Okay? But the cross links our living to the living God. The cross takes us to Eucharist, the Eucharist to the body, being the people, the people with its rituals and everything that show meaning. We are the cross. Not living according to the cross, he says, means being condemned, even, even as though you're not a Christian. He says, if you don't do this, he goes, you're going to be condemned as though you weren't one of us. Why? Because you're not living covenantally. May God grant all of us to conform our lives to the cross, that our communion be of holy between the people and the people and the people with the head and the head with, with the Trinity. Um, to him be glory, majesty, and praise forever and ever, age of ages. Amen. Good thing we didn't even attempt chapter 12 because um, there's no way we would have got there. Um, any, uh, I, I see one question on here. Um, I'm not sure if there were any online. If there is, I hope somebody can, can paste it. Um, why do clergy cover their heads if St. Paul says not to? Where did that practice start? Also, hi, Buna. Hi, hi. Um, see you soon in Vancouver. Um, actually, there's a lot of, uh, of, of debate um, in our church about the whole head covering and not head covering. And that's why I was saying a lot of these things are cultural rituals, right? And so in many ways, culturally, the trends ended up going the opposite direction, where it felt weird to uncover as though you're being irreverent, right? That's why, for example, when I go to the monastery, I have to have my head covered. Um, like it's a deeply, deeply rooted tradition that you don't walk around with your head uncovered. And so there were cultural shifts that did it. And so now our, our liturgical and cultural um, practices are actually not quite um, jiving uh, with one another. Um, and that seems to be, uh, Missy Raisty. Um, that seems to be it. Love God the Father, grace and the God the Son, the communion of the Holy Spirit with you all. Go in peace, the peace of the Lord be with you all. This talk was brought to you by Upper Room Media. We hope that this talk has, through the grace of God, touched your heart, and we pray that it will not only inform you but will also transform you and your life with Christ.